turn our attention to Malachi chapter 6. And of course, or excuse me, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And of course, uh, the visiting guy gets the text on tithing, right? Pastor Brad uh, very aptly titled this message, uh, Cheap Worship. And as we were talking about the series, I was uh, very impressed with uh, the way that he... Uh, the way that he was uh, demonstrating the relevance of this text today. And uh, I think absolutely this text is... Uh, something that we all struggle with, even as uh, your pastoral team has long assured me that you are a financially generous uh, congregation. And in this text, uh, essentially, God again charges Israel with an offense. He uh, demonstrates the proof of his accusation, uh, and he uh, clarifies that there is a consequence and then offers a very gracious commitment uh, should they repent. And so I'd like to read the text this morning and we'll pray together. Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the privilege that we have uh, to worship you together this morning. Lord, I thank you for giving us such abundant cause for worship. Lord, that even uh, in our hardness of heart, in our rebellion, Lord, you would draw us to Christ. You would gather us as a people. You would equip us for your work. Lord, your grace is abundant. And Lord, we pray for your grace this morning. Lord, we pray that your spirit would show us uh, the truth of your word. Lord, it would show us the sin in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see, Lord, our desperate need for you. And Lord, we would ask that you would uh, show us uh, how you have uh, 
abundantly supplied for our need. Lord, I pray uh, that you would guard my lips. Lord, that uh, you know. Uh, Lord, you know my heart. And Lord, I pray uh, this morning that you would help me to proclaim your truth clearly, that you would guard me from hypocrisy. Lord, I pray that we would be enriched by your word, Lord, as you minister to us together by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as we've seen, uh, this uh, book is essentially a series of disputes where the Lord uh, accuses Israel of something. He demonstrates the truth of his accusation, and this is uh, the fifth dispute in the series. And uh, in some sense, in this dispute, uh, the Lord is building on a theme uh, that's been evident uh, throughout the book, uh, where we see in the, in the first dispute that the Lord chooses Jacob, uh, and by the fifth refu- dispute, we're seeing the Lord as a refiner. That even as uh, the physical children of Jacob are rebelling against the Lord, that the Lord is preserving a faithful remnant so that his promises to Jacob may stand. And here especially, I think we see the continued development of that theme. Uh, But uh, verse 6 starts a little bit different. And actually, some disagreement about like, whether verse 6 has more to do with uh, verse 5 or more to do with verse 7, but like anticipating that uh, the people of Israel by this point in the book would be saying, like, well, yeah, God, but, but you've changed. You know, yeah, Jacob made a covenant with you, but look at the way that you're treating us. Look at the promises that you've made. Look at the way things are in the land. Like, obviously, you've forgotten about the commitments that you've made to us. And so, uh, with that in mind, verse 6 starts with this flat assertion, but beginning with 4, because, and linking it to the previous text, but leading into our text today, I, the Lord, do not change. And, In some sense, we have just a flat theological truth here. That God is immutable. He does not change. That God's character uh, could never be less than what it's been. It could also never be greater than what it is. That God is perfect. And that He is unchanging. And this... uh, This theological truth, I think, is the sort of thing that we can hold up and we can look at and we can admire, but we should never divorce this truth uh, from the broader text. We should never divorce any theological truth from its implications. That God is asserting that while this thing is true about me, it has everything to do with the way I relate to you as a people, which is true of any theological truth. Every 
attribute of God. Every attribute of God informs the way he relates to his people, and this theological truth certainly informs the way that he relates to his people. I do not change, and because I am unchanging, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Or in other words, look at the way that I've treated every other nation in their rebellion. The only reason that I haven't destroyed you as a people is because I've made the promise to Jacob. And I am faithfully committed to that promise. Otherwise, you would have been consumed long ago. And I know what it is. I know at some point, uh, maybe you might start to think about other things. And if you succumbed to that temptation this morning and this were the only thing that you heard, remember that, Christian, that the Lord does not change. That absolutely the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what difficulties you encounter, no matter what hardships you face, that Lord, the Lord is faithful to His promise. And what God began in Christ, He will finish in Christ for the exaltation of Christ. You would think, uh, based on this claim, back to our text, that He would say, but, but you, children of Jacob, you've changed. Let me tell you, I'm, I haven't changed, but you've changed. But he says almost exactly the opposite. Verse 7, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Right? So, essentially, he's in like, I haven't changed, you haven't changed. And like, well, where's the contrast there? The contrast is plain in that while the Lord is faithful to His promise, Israel made a commitment in the covenant that they've never kept. They have never been faithful to their commitment in the covenant. They have not kept the law. They've turned aside from the statutes generation after generation after generation. The promises that we're seeing in Malachi are promises, as Brad said, that were made a hundred years ago to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 4. God essentially makes the same commitment He makes in this text today. And He hasn't fulfilled that commitment yet because of Israel's rebellion. Because of Israel's hardness. Right? And so, while God is truly faithful to His Word, Israel's persistent rebellion, Israel's persistent rejection of their covenant obligations uh, has forestalled the fulfillment of God's promises. Everything Brad's been talking about, everything that uh, they are dealing with now, the famine, the pestilence, the lack of God's glory in the temple, those are all due to Israel's faithlessness, not God's. And so, it's contrasting His faithfulness and Israel's faithlessness that God again graciously invites their repentance. 
Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And here we see, you've seen, that this has everything to do with their repentance. God has not been caught off guard by their faithlessness. He has not yet been exhausted by their faithlessness. Graciously, for generation after generation, He has invited them to repent, to turn from their rebellion and return to Him. And still, He's graciously saying, return to Me, repent, and I will return to you. And we'd hope by this point in the book that Israel would say, you know what, you're right. You're right. We see it. We didn't want to see it, but now we see it and we're ready. But that's not what they say. Yet again, they say, how shall we return? And and like you've seen before, we shouldn't understand this as like humble willingness to repent and just asking God, you know, okay, so let us know what all we need to repent of. But this is very much Israel saying something like, we don't have anything to repent of. What have we done wrong? That's, that's not true. We, we, we don't deserve this. Like, we've done nothing that warrants repentance. And so God puts a point on it. Will man rob God? And just think about that for a second. I know that's a should be kind of a shocking sort of question to us, right? Like because uh, for a robbery to happen, like assume that the person who is doing the robbing, robbing and overpowers the person that they are robbing, right? Like, otherwise you're just giving it to somebody. Like if, if uh, I see Luke down here. Luke, Luke looks like a guy I wouldn't fight with a bat, right? Like, he's a big dude. And uh, if Luke says, give me your wallet, I won't make this guy mad. I'm going to give him my wallet. But if the roles were reversed and I were... Uh, robbing Luke, and I said, Luke, give me your wallet. Oh, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> right? Like, how could man rob God? Who could overpower the Lord? Right? Like, it's supposed to be an absurd question. Like, no, oh, man can't rob God. There's no way that man could overpower the Lord. And the absurdity of the question is in the conjunction. Yet, but, you are robbing me. And the the emphasis here is on me. It it wouldn't have the gloss, but you could translate this. Yet, me, you are robbing. Like, there's disbelief. Like, me, the Lord, you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? 
well, we, haven't, we, can't, we haven't taken anything from you. We couldn't take anything from you. You're the Lord of hosts. And then the fine point comes. In your tithes and contributions. And uh, that's a new word to you, tithe. If that's a new word to you, uh, a tithe was something uh, that Israel was obligated by the law to give to the Lord, uh, 10%. Uh, and they would, well, account, they'd, maybe, they'd probably give it 12 or 14 times a year. They'd give 10% of their income to the Lord. And uh, it predates the law of Moses. Uh, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Jacob promises a tithe, but it's, uh, it's codified in the law of Moses that Israel has this obligation to give the Lord 10% the Levitic tithe, and it goes to support the Levites in the temple. There's also in uh, two tithes uh, mandated in Deuteronomy. Uh, the first at certain feasts, and the second happens every third year, uh, and that is supposed to go to people who cannot care for themselves, basically the people you saw in the text last week, uh, sojourner, the widow, or two weeks ago, excuse me, sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, the people who cannot care for themselves. And so, well, probably everybody knows the tithe is 10%. Tithe means a tenth. Uh, actually, uh, probably, the tithe, if you totaled all the tithes that Israel was supposed to give, was probably something more like 20% uh, in aggregate, adding the Levitic tithes and the Deuteronomic tithes. Uh, and... Uh, God is, if you're not robbing me, then where is the tithe? Why is the storehouse and the temple empty? And I'm going to tip my hand for a second. As, uh, I know that uh, a question uh, that's often asked uh, by Christians, is, is a Christian obligated to tithe? Like, do I have some obligation to do this, to give 10%? Well, you're saying 20? Do I have to, I have to give 20%? Uh, no, I, I don't think that we are obligated to tithe uh, in the sense that we are no longer under the law of Moses. Now, true, Jesus does say in, in an interaction with the Pharisees, uh, that they should tithe without neglecting the lesser obligations of the law, or excuse me, neglecting the greater obligations of the law. But Jesus, uh, Jesus is standing at a unique time in salvi salvific history where we're in the dawning of the new covenant, but he's preaching to people who are still under the old covenant, which is why in Matthew 5 he also gives instructions about how a person ought to offer their sacrifice. He's speaking to people who are still operating under the Old Covenant. <clears throat> and so, while I don't think uh, we should allow our minds to wander here, uh, don't be thinking about your budget, don't be thinking about the percentage, we'll come back to giving, but to these people, to people operating in the Old Covenant, 
Where's the tithe? Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Right? So everything that they've been dealing with as a land, everything that uh, they've endured, the famine, the pestilence, whatever else has come that has uh, resulted in crop failure and hardship, uh, well, you may be telling yourself, well, we can't tithe because of the way things are, you need to know that the way things are is because of your lack of faith. Right? The consequences of your sin are not justification for further sin. And if you're still listening, remember that. Because that principle is equally true today. The consequences of our sin are not justification for further sin. But still, even as God clearly explains why they are under this hardship, God graciously invites them back. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And uh, as Pastor Brad mentioned earlier, that uh, probably certainly one of the things that was happening, one of the things Malachi seems to take issue with here, is that uh, blemished goods were being brought as a tithe. Unclean things were being brought as a tithe. And, uh, you know, well, what am I going to do with this sheep? Like, uh, let's give it to God. Right? Like, uh, a less than spotless lamb is given. But here in verse 10, we see maybe a little more clarity about what's happening. That uh, while some people are giving animals not suited for a sacrifice, still others are giving less than the full sacrifice. And so God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And I give up. I lost my way a long time ago on my notes. Uh, What we see here uh, is almost unique, right? Like every once in a while in the Old Testament, someone, someone specifically uh, a person, is invited to test the Lord. But here we see an entire nation invited to test the Lord. Put me to the test. Go ahead. Try me. I've been promising you this over and over. Now try me. See if I'm faithful to my word. Do what you've committed to do and see if I'm faithful in my commitment, says the Lord of hosts. If you will simply do this, I will open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing that you cannot imagine until there is no more need. It reminds me of 
I recently preached through Kings, and you see this uh, several times in Kings. Is it with the widow of uh, Zarephath, right? Like Elijah says, well, bake me the cake first, and then we'll see if things run out. Or uh, the widow in the jars, right? Like the oil keeps coming and coming until there are no more jars to keep it in. It, like, yet again, God is, is it, like, I am going to fill your barns until there's no more barns to fill. The abundance of heaven will rain down on you if you simply trust in me and give me what you're obligated to give me. Right? I, God is not asking them to give something that belongs to them to Him. God is saying, give some of what belongs to me to the temple and I will very graciously allow you to keep the rest. And if you display that sort of faith, if you display that sort of trust in me, you will be shocked by the abundance that rains down on you. And not only will I fill the barns, but I will rebuke the devourer. Locusts is probably what's in mind here. I will rebuke anything that would take your crop so that it won't destroy the fruit and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear. Probably what he has in mind here is uh, severe weather where there begins to be fruit on the vine, but, you know, it's, well, if you farm around here, you know, like the risk of hail knocking an ear of corn off the plant or beans to the ground, right? Like that sometimes it looks like there's going to be an abundance, but something happens and that abundance ends up in the soil, right? Oh, I promise you that what the fruit that you begin to see will continue to maturity, says the Lord of hosts. And I don't I'll just say all this. You know, I would, I would love to say, uh, we look back at this text, uh, that the application is really clear here. I'd, I'd, I'd love to have a beaming smile uh, and tell you that for every dollar you give to me, I'm going to make sure God gives you two. But I don't really think uh, that <laughs> that's at all what's happening here. I think uh, there's something else entirely. <clears throat> but for them, for Israel, the Lord is saying, in your faithfulness to me and the accompanying blessing, material blessing, the nations will see exactly what's happening and know that it's the God that you worship. You will be a land of delight because of my blessing. And that has been, that continues to be 
Israel's call. Israel is supposed to be a nation that is faithful to its covenant promises, a nation that God continues to bless, uh, a nation that draws the attention of the nations so that everyone will know that the Lord of hosts reigns supreme. But Israel's faithlessness has not only affected Israel, it's affected the nations. The nations aren't seeing the power of God because God is restrained in keeping His promise to Israel in Israel's faithlessness. And so we have to ask the question, well, all right, so if the meaning of the text is plain enough, if uh, Israel made commitments in uh, the covenant that they're not keeping, if the Lord's curse has fall, fallen upon Israel because of their disobedience, and if God is graciously inviting them to return to the their covenant commitments and watch his blessing fall upon them. Uh, that's an interesting portion of salvific history, but what does that have to do with us? And I would say uh, that there are several things evident uh, in this text, several principles evident in this text that have everything to do with us today. Uh, First, uh, Israel would you advance to the next slide? Israel is withholding good gifts that God has given. And God wouldn't be asking for the tithe if there wasn't enough for tithing. Now maybe Israel doesn't think they have as much as they need and so they shouldn't give the full tithe, but Israel has enough to tithe. They're looking at what they perceive they lack and thinking they don't want to give what they have. And our Lord doesn't change. If it was true, as the Lord related to Israel, that Israel's perception of their need and their decision that they wanted to cling to what they had rather than freely give it to the Lord and trust Him to meet their needs uh, was uh, an offense to the Lord then, then God's people, clinging to what they have close-handedly, and refusing to offer it to the Lord, trusting that He will provide, surely is still an offense to the Lord today. And uh, again, uh, I understand that you are uh, an extraordinarily generous church financially. I think uh, 
Probably this principle goes far beyond finances. That certainly, if you are uh, financially clinging to what you have because you don't think that it's enough, that that ought to tell you something about your own heart. That uh, it's a lack of faith that prompts us to be anything less than generous with what the Lord has given us. But more than that, I think probably there are lots of other things uh, that we need to understand belong to the Lord that we cling to as if they were ours. Things other than money. That I've heard several times in my life, if you want to know where a person's heart is, look at their checkbook register. And for those of you under 50, a checkbook register is a little... (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But not. (laughs) Which is probably true. Uh, Most... been a few places in the world and uh, in other cultures, uh, other places, I've, I've been part of conversations where two people were haggling over an amount to me that seemed utterly insignificant and I was thinking, I will just pay it if you can give me the next 15 minutes back. Uh, like, probably... Like most of you, time is far more precious to me than money. I will gladly pay somebody something if it will save me time because I know that time is the most precious resource to me. And so for that reason, as I was thinking through the text this week, uh, well, it, it is quite possible that I'll be preaching to people whose heart could be demonstrated by their bank statement. But probably more likely for most of us, where our heart is would be more aptly demonstrated by our calendar. That the things that I give my time to are probably the things that I care most about. And most of the time, uh, my time is spent on me. My time is spent on the things that I think will make me happy. And to the degree that it's true for you, that you think that your time is your own, we need to understand we're Israel in this story. And like, yeah, this is a good text, and all those people that don't tithe, all those people that aren't writing checks to the church, they need to hear that text. And we cling to our time like it's our own. We are the people who are saying, how shall we return, Lord? We're the people that think we have nothing to repent of. What about your relationships? I I mean, yeah, I'm going to rebuke that brother in sin if it it suits me. I mean, I'm not going to do it just because. 
I'll, I'll encourage that sister in the gospel if I have time, but I don't know, we'll see if I can get to it this week. Our relationships are not our own. Our time is not our own. When we cling to these things like they belong to us and we don't open-handedly give them to the Lord and seek His guidance, we are people who are saying, how have we robbed you, Lord? Not to mention your spiritual gift. I mean, if your spiritual gift has a pretty fine coat of rust on it, you are Israel here. You are brazenly robbing from the Lord of hosts like you're never going to give an account for that. Repent. Christian, repent. And praise God in Christ. The second principle we see in this text is absolutely true today, even more so. Those who will repent, those who will return to the Lord are going to receive God's blessing. They're going to receive the forgiveness of the Lord. That if we will simply turn from the sin that characterizes so much of our life, God's abundance will fall on us. And again, I'm not telling you that for this means for every minute you give, God will give you two. For every dollar you give, God will give you two. For every uh, friend that you hand over to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this friendship? God will give you two more. That's not what I'm saying. This was a particular promise to Israel at a particular time in their history. But what I am telling you, what the New Testament resoundingly tells us, is that God's abundance will absolutely fall on those who give things that they cannot hold on to over to the Lord. That at the end of days, there will absolutely be a reckoning. And God will bless those who place their faith in Him, who steward their resources well in a way we cannot possibly comprehend. That we are a fool of fools if we think we can cling to any of the things that seem like they'll satisfy us and most of all, if we think those things could ever give the sort of satisfaction that God is able to give. Would you go to the next slide? I, I promised Brad. Brad warned me that there would be a reckoning with the children's ministry if I didn't get a slide with a key in it. Uh, and so I want to make sure I get a key principle in today. And that is that true worship, true worship requires that we genuinely steward everything the Lord has given us for His glory. Everything the Lord has given us. Every relationship, any gift, 
any talent, every moment. We have to be people who steward everything the Lord has given us for His glory. That God has absolutely given us everything in Christ. And if we return the blessings that we have around us now, that is nothing compared to what we've received in Jesus Christ. Nothing. That we are people who ought to be absolutely open-handed with everything that the Lord has given us, and that is true worship. The Lord's issue with Israel in this text is their cheap worship. You are trying to worship me in a way that costs you absolutely nothing, and I don't want that sort of worship. I want real worship, true worship, worship that demonstrates Worship that demonstrates the fact that you recognize that I am giving you everything. And so think about your own heart. Think about think about the kind of worship that you're offering the Lord. Is it worship that really costs you nothing? A few dollars, a couple hours on Sunday, not much more? Or are you worshiping the Lord in a way that demonstrates your absolute trust in His faithfulness? And I would say that in the Lord's providence, the promise He makes to Israel here is probably equally true to the church. That in the same way that God's blessing, material blessing, pouring out Israel would prompt the attention of the nations, that God's blessing on a church who truly stewards everything well, knowing that it's actual worship, will prompt the attention of the nations today. The way the Spirit would fill a body stewarding its time well, its gifts well, its relationships well, would absolutely draw the attention of a world who really, deep down, knows that there's no satisfaction in the things that we're all chasing. And so, a prayer for you My prayer for myself is that we walk out of this portion of the text recognizing that all too often the things of this world capture our attention and we mistakenly think uh, somehow they'll give us happiness or somehow we can hold on to them. And I hope we see neither of those things are possible and that that sort of worship is an affront to the Lord.
that we are people who are consistently pursuing still greater faithfulness. That we never look at our stewardship as though We're never people who look at the minimum. And say, well, how much do I have to give God? Okay, I'll give that much and not more. That I don't look at my finances that way, that I don't look at my relationships that way, that I never think about my time that way. That we are people constantly striving to more faithfully steward absolutely everything that the Lord has given us for His glory and that we understand that is true worship. And no matter how faithful we are, we still aren't giving the Lord the worship that He truly deserves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You, God, Lord, that you are a God who does not give your people the judgment that they deserve. Lord, uh, I thank you that Lord, even as we consider our own faithfulness, Lord, as we consider Israel's faithlessness, Lord, as As we think about uh, our worship and theirs, Lord, that uh, you are a God who disciplines those whom you love that they may not be condemned. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, rightly consider our own lives, Lord, that we would... uh, Consider uh, ways in which we ourselves uh, may be experiencing your discipline, Lord. And I pray that we would be people eager to repent, Lord, that we would never be people uh, denying our own sin, but Lord, we would be actively searching our own hearts and by the power of Christ seeking to kill it. Lord, that we more faithfully serve you. Lord, that we more faithfully preach the hope of Christ to the nations. And Lord, as you bless us, as we become more like Christ, Lord, we pray that you would use that glorious power to draw the attention of the nations. Lord, that they would see the church as your true people. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for the building of your church. In Christ's name, amen.